0: you're listening to the city on a hill dfw sermon podcast for more information about our church or to support these ministries visit us at cityonahilldfw.com Bibles Bible is the first John chapter five. That's where we're going to be this morning. First John chapter five. You know, uh, having been born in the mid 80s, I was born in 1985, right in the middle of the eighties, child of the nineties, or at least most of the childhood that I can remember was in the nineties. Um, I was greatly influenced and impacted by many, and I do mean many high profile court cases. Like they really made, I think, a big impact on my life. They shaped the way I saw the world early and, and kind of set up an expectation that never really ended up coming to fruition, which was that like several court cases that are high profile would always just sort of be happening. That didn't, that didn't end up panning out. It was mostly just in that, in that mid-90s uh, uh, section of my life. I was born in 85, so, so think about this for a moment. When I was seven years old, I remember uh, the four Los Angeles police officers that were charged for the beating of Rodney King and the subsequent LA riots that took place after. I I remember seeing that on the TV and hearing the news about it and and, and hearing people talk about it as a a kid, adults in my life talk about it. I was nine years old when a Portland grand jury issued an indictment involving Tanya Harding and her role in the assault on Nancy Kerrigan before the 1994 United States figure skating championships. I remember this very well very, very well. My family watched a lot of Olympics, a lot of... This was in that era where, like, figure skating was uh, an, an event, right? And uh, I remember this very well. I was nine years old on the first day of the trial involving O.J. Simpson. In fact, I remember the the day that he was chased in his Ford Bronco. Basically, it just put an end to the Bronco for, like, two decades, didn't it? Jamie reminded, that, uh, reminded me of that this week. I remember I... Um, I remember when the chase began on television, we were living in my first childhood home. And, and this was the time in, in the world where uh, we were not allowed to play inside. And so we played outside. And then when the street lights came on, that was the green light to come in. And I remember when the, when the street lights came on and I came inside, OJ was still going. And I remember thinking like, man, this dude is not gonna get away, give up already. It's been hours, right? Uh, I was nine years old when four men were convicted of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Uh, I was 10 years old when Yolanda Saldivar convicted of murder for uh, the murder of Selena. Selena. Um, Great movie, by the way. Uh, Great movie. Um, I don't don't remember if there's anything inappropriate, so don't go watch it because your pastor told you to watch it. But I remember as a kid, Jennifer Lopez, I thought she was Selena and then I realized that it was a movie. Uh, Ten years old when Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, who incidentally died yesterday in prison, uh, (coughs) released his 35,000-word manifesto, which ultimately led to his arrest. I was 11 when Tupac Shakur was killed. I was 11 when Timothy McVeigh was found guilty of the Oklahoma City bombing, which was, by the way, a reaction against the United States government for their Waco siege in 92 involving David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. I was seven when that happened. And I had family in Riesel, which is just outside of Waco, who could see the smoke from the compound from where they lived. Uh, That's how close they were to it. Uh, It was a a major affair in my life. I remember the Waco thing very well because family was very close to, we weren't in the Branch Davidians, but it was just near them geographically. Um, It was other cults that my family was involved in. Not that (laughs) one. Um, Eleven years old when uh, the kidnapping of John Benet Ramsey took place and the Uh, cases against uh, her family and mom and all of that, 11 years old when then-American President Bill Clinton did not have sexual relationships with uh, 22-year-old Monica Lewinsky. On top of all of that, I was 11 when the first season premiered featuring Judy Shindlin, otherwise known as Judge Judy, yes, one big fan, I love that, that's good. Be proud of that, that's excellent. I could go on, but I think you get the point. My life, I, I was raised with the assumption that, like, this is just life. This is normal life. People in high positions go to court. It's very public. It's very televised. And, and this is just how it is. And, and so you can imagine my disappointment when 98 rolled around. and There was, like, nothing, right? Um, this was a very normal pattern in my life. So today, in our passage, I thought it would be fun. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. For us to go back to my roots, my childhood roots, for us to go into a high-profile Public courtroom where the Apostle John is going to make his case concerning the true identity and nature of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Verse five, John tells us that that believing in the Son, confessing rightly the Son, is how we overcome the world. That's what he says in verse five. This is who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's how you do it. That's how you have victory. That's what verse four talks about. Victory is one of those big buzzwords in evangelicalism. How do you have victory? Simply by believing in the son, by believing that Jesus is who he said he is. So we have to get Jesus right. And this is not the first time we've talked about this. This is not the first time that John has written concerning Jesus' identity in this letter. But now he's gonna make the case in court once and for all that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of God. He really lived, he really died. He really conquered sin and death for those who would believe in him upon the cross through the resurrection. But in order for John to do this, he's gotta build a case. And if you were around during any of those high profile uh, public trials, you know that every great trial involves some witnesses. People have to come to the stand and they have to give their testimonies to a jury. And so this trial begins this morning. The judge enters the room. I asked my creative team for a gavel, and this is what they give me. The Amazon picture is of a baby holding the gavel. How did we not know? Whatever. The judge enters. And he instructs the defendants to please call the first witness to the stand. So we begin our time this morning in our text with the witnesses. Three specific witnesses, actually, that John calls to come and give their testimony concerning the identity and nature of Jesus. And this is important to note up front, these are not just any testimonies. These are witnesses who have testimonies that are not human testimonies, they come from God. That's what verse 9 says. Witnesses are, are, are bringing testimonies that come from God himself. They are trustworthy, in other words. We can listen to these people. The question is, who are the witnesses? <clears throat> Look at verse 6. John says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. And then look at verses seven and eight. He says very clearly who these uh, witnesses are. For there are three, he says, that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three Agree. These three witnesses are going to come to the stand, they're going to testify concerning what they saw, concerning what they know, and they're going to give corroborating evidence to what John is going to argue for that agrees with his story. These three witnesses have come into this courtroom to give testimony concerning the identity and the nature of Jesus Christ, the water, the blood, and the spirit. So our job this morning as we open this text. Is really twofold. First of all, to figure out what does John mean by this? What does he mean by particularly blood and water? Spirit, we have an idea of blood and water, a little more confusing. And specifically, what is their testimony? What is it that they're saying to us? And so we're going to call our first witness to the stand. We're going to do this a lot this morning. Just get ready. We call the water, the water to the stand to come and testify. Now, this is a bit strange, isn't it? Water? What is so significant about water, one might ask? As it turns out a lot, scholars have not always agreed about what the water here uh, symbolizes or or what John is really saying here. But let me give you a few suggestions of what has been put out there throughout the years, throughout the centuries, because this is obviously a 2,000-year-old question. And uh, and we're going to talk about it in correlation with what the significance of water is within the Bible. And then I'm going to give you, I'm going to kind of show you my cards at the end of this and tell you what I think the water is. Let's talk about the first possibility. Some people have suggested that it is water in blood, water in blood. What do I mean by that? In the ancient world, when this was written, it was not uncommon for people to believe that blood was mixed with a compound of water, such that when you are in a fight or you're doing something and you cut yourself and blood comes out of that cut, what you're seeing come out of the body is actually blood, the red stuff, the life source mixed with water, which is why it's liquid. Sounds strange, but it really makes sense given what the context of the world was during this time 2,000 years ago. Water was your primary drinking source unless you were wealthy and could afford wine. And even then, that was a, a rare thing. You mostly just drank water. We didn't know much about the human body at this point. Biology uh, wasn't really a big thing at this point. Blood acts like water. It's a liquid. And so so it makes sense. I mean, when when you think about the ancient mind thinking about blood, it's not hard to figure out why they might have thought that blood was mixed with water, and that's kind of what made it a a liquid state. Beyond that, John seems to couple, in verse 6, blood and water together. He says, this is he who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by the water and the blood, almost like it's one unit. Not blood individually, water individually, but by the water and blood, one thing. And this obviously fits the ancient context as well. It it makes a lot of sense why someone would suggest this for an interpretation. The problem with it is that John, throughout even this letter, has spoken about the blood quite a bit without the context of water added. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense why all of a sudden now he's referring to it as water and blood. A popular suggestion that has come forth uh, quite a bit is uh, the obvious corollary to water, at least in the New Testament, which is baptism, that he's speaking about the baptism of Jesus here. Uh, This is the beginning point of Jesus' ministry. Matthew and Luke record aspects of Jesus' childhood, but overwhelmingly, those stories occur after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. It's a water baptism, isn't it? Matthew 3, 16, says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, like a dove, not a dove, just FYI, and coming to rest on him. So Jesus comes up from the water. He's in the Jordan River. He comes up from the water. By the way, he was all the way underwater, and he came up from the water. He was immersed. Even the word baptized tells us that a little bit. It's the Greek term baptizo, and it's a word that means immersion, to go all the way under. It's not a sprinkling. In fact, this word is used in ancient literature outside of the Bible to describe the sinking of ships in battle. So when a a ship sinks, it's not just sprinkled with ocean water, it goes underwater. It's done. It goes to the bottom of the ocean. So John could mean the baptism of Jesus by water here the water in which Jesus was baptized. So you can imagine John calls the water to the stand. And he says, water, where were you on the day when Jesus was baptized? And the water would say, I was with him, your honor. And John would say, "Uh, did you hear the father's voice directed at Jesus while he was in the water saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased? And the water would say, yes, I did. I, I did hear that. And John would say, your honor, let the record show that the water testifies that God the father referred to Jesus as his son while he was baptized in the water. That's a good explanation. I mean, that'll preach, won't it? That's good. I'm not convinced by it. Let me give you my explanation. Can I do that? I don't really, I'm going to anyways. I'm going to tell you my explanation anyways. Um, I, I, I got to warn you, if we're going to do this, if I'm going to tell you what I think John is doing here. It's going to require us to do some serious Bible study this morning. We're going to have to really dig deep and do some some real biblical theology for a moment. We're going to do a lot of jumping around and correlating passages in other places. Can we do that? Again, we're, we're going to. So if it's like long bathroom break or stick with us and Hopefully uh, this is, here's the thing, I, I like to be practical when I preach, I, I, and we will. We'll come to a landing spot here at the end. I want to I give you something that God's word is, is practical, it, it matters, it, it affects us on our day-to-day living. Sometimes the text, though, demands us do some heavy lifting to really get at what was, what was the original intent of this passage? What were the authors trying to communicate in these passages? And so I want us to do that this morning. I want you to see how well the Bible as a whole fits together that sometimes the answer to a question in Bible study can be both right in front of you and also really, really easy to miss. When we study the Bible, it's important to pay attention to the human author of whatever it is that you're studying. Ultimately, we believe that the Holy Spirit is the author of all scripture. He, he is the one who breathes out the text. It, the, the scriptures are thanustos, God breathed uh, onto the paper. But God the Spirit uses human agency to communicate that which he dictates. And these human agents while being carried along by the Spirit, do have unique aspects to their writing style, the way they use the language. For example, John's usage of Greek is quite different than Luke's usage of Greek. John is very simple. Luke is almost classical Greek. Paul uses the Greek language in a very different way than both of them. So you get some flavors uh, depending on who you're reading. And beyond that, They use specific phrases and words sometimes that are unique to their corpus of literature. So again, for example, John, when you read particularly his gospel, John likes to refer to himself as the beloved disciple or the one whom Jesus loved. This is how you know he's talking about himself is the beloved disciple. Uh, This is unique to John's writings. No one else does this. So when you're studying the Bible, you wanna cross-reference a passage that you're looking at. You first wanna begin with, other literature that that author has written if it exists. So in our case, we're looking at this phrase, blood and water. We're trying to figure out what does John mean here? It's a good rule to start with 2 John, 3 John, the gospel according to John and revelation, one revelation, not plural. These are all books that John also authored. Now, when we do that, we look for blood and water in John's writings What we discover is that there is one other place where blood and water occur together in conjunction, and that's in John chapter 19. So in John 19, uh, John records the succession of events that take place leading up to the death of Jesus. He records the final sentence passed by Pilate. Uh, he records Jesus actually being crucified with the other two individuals, uh, the guards dividing up his garments just like the, the scriptures predicted. John records four women at the crucifixion. Uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, who is not named, Mary, wife of Clopas, which by the way, I, always, I just like to remind you young Christian women who are planning on having children and have boys, want a biblical name, Clopas is on the table. Uh, no other Clopas I know, so that's a unique one, it's up for grabs. And then you also have Mary Magdalene, who is also there, four women at the crucifixion. And then he records the actual death of the Lord, verse 30. We read this last week, we'll read it again. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, tetelestai. That's that Greek term, completed. It is completed, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, you keep reading verse 31, what you find is that the guards are actually in a really big hurry to get these guys dead so that they can bury them. And so they go to break their legs. Dying by crucifixion takes several days. What would happen is uh, as the individuals hang from a cross or a tree or whatever it was that they used to crucify, in this case crosses, they would have nailed them by the wrists more than likely and the sides of the ankles. And what would happen is these individuals would stay on a cross sometimes for several days before they would die. And when they finally ran out of strength, Holding themselves up by their legs to breathe, they would collapse and it would sort of collapse their diaphragm and they would suffocate. Most people died by suffocation when they were crucified. Several days go by is a problem for this context. Because the Sabbath is approaching and per the law, they had to bury these men the same day to avoid them being on the cross during the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23 says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So they're under the pressure of the law at this point. And so in order to speed the process up, they go to break the legs of the people so that they can't support themselves, so that they collapse and suffocate. But then look at verse 33. It says, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead... They did not break his legs. Now, this took place in order to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. John tells us, uh, tells us this in a little while. But that leads us to verse 34, which is our passage we're interested in. It says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> one other place in John's writings where we find blood and water, and it's here in John 19:34. So... The next question then would be for, for John, for his literature and particularly in this gospel, is there any other things that John says concerning either blood or water that would make sense of this when we get to this verse all the way in chapter 19. And as it turns out, there are places, two in particular, one about water, one about blood. We find the one about water in John 7. We'll start there. John 7 records a moment very uh, important to the Jewish calendar. Verse 2 says that uh, the Feast of Booths was about to take place. Some of your translations will say the Festival of Tabernacles. This was a feast instituted by Mosaic law that celebrated God's provision and presence with his people while they wandered in the wilderness, living in tents or booths or tabernacles Um, while they were in the wilderness God remained with them he remained faithful to them he provided for them and so this festival celebrates that and it takes place in a whole succession of Jewish festivals that, that surround it but this one in particular lasted seven days and it culminated on the last day or what John calls the great day with a water ritual of sorts wherein priests would take water from the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem They would fill that water into basins and they would go and they would pour the water out, symbolizing the moment where God in the future would pour out his spirit on his people as prophesied by Joel chapter 2, which actually also is referenced in Acts 2 as sort of a fulfillment of that. So Jesus goes to this, this festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, and it says in verses 37 through 39, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So get this. Understand the context. Imagine this for a moment. Jesus is at the the, the feast of booths. It's on the last day. The water ritual is about to happen. Jesus stands up and he says, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. In other words, you come here every year to this festival And you long for and you thirst for God's presence and provision in your life, just like he said he would give you through the prophet Joel. But I say to you, you will never thirst if you drink the water that I offer you. This water represents the spirit who gives eternal life. Water is life. It's eternal life. When you come to faith in Christ, you receive life Jesus is full of life, and when you drink the water he gives you, you never thirst, you live forever. You have eternal life. I believe this first witness, the water, is life. Life eternal. What about the second witness we call to the stand? Let's hear from the blood. Now, if we're taking... John 19 as our anchor point for understanding blood and water as a whole, then we need, again, we need to go back to John's gospel and figure out there's, there's a passage that's unique to water that, that could be pointing to or ultimately referenced back to by John 19. Is there anything about blood? And again, as it turns out, there is. There's one passage in John's gospel that is specifically about blood. Very fascinating. In chapter seven, we're told that if you want to live You drink his water that he gives. But in chapter 6, we're told if you want to live, you drink his blood. Look at John chapter 6, verses 47 through 51. He says, truly, truly, amen, amen. That's what the Greek is there. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, this is an incredible part of the story for us who know how things work out, right? But for the crowds, it's a little weird. They think he's talking about cannibalism here. Look at verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's a weird thing to say. I mean, apart from the fact that it breaks Mosaic law, it's just weird. But Jesus responds, verses 53 through 56. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him." There's that word abide. Remember that word from a few weeks ago when Dr. Reeves preached? Menno, the Greek term that means to abide or remain in. Here it is again. Jesus is saying, you wanna know how I abide in you and how you abide in me? You gotta drink my blood. The blood, like the water, signifies life, eternal life. If you want to live, you got to drink the water. If you want to live, you got to drink the blood. There's no other options. You see, when you read John's gospel from start to finish, the picture that he wants you to walk away with concerning Jesus, apart from him and being God, God in the flesh, is that he represents life. Jesus is life. He is the water of life. He is the bread of life. He is the blood of life. He gives the spirit of life. He is life. Eternal life is in him. You don't get eternal life unless you eat from him, unless you drink from him, because life is in him. That's what John 1, 4 says. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So when Jesus dies, understand this. When he dies and life leaves his body, what comes out of his body? Water and blood, because it's life and it's leaving him. The life is in the water and the blood. John is calling to witness the very aspects of God in Christ who can testify that Jesus is who he says he is. John wants to prove to you that that Jesus is the son of God who can grant eternal life to those who believe, and who better to call upon than the very water and the blood that comes from him that give eternal life. Now that leaves us with the last witness. The Spirit. John says in the primary passage, there are three witnesses, the water and the blood and the Spirit. Now, what role does the Spirit play in all of this? I mean, I think generally speaking, you can say the Holy Spirit, right? That's a, that's a I'm going to give you 95% on that. You get an A plus just for throwing that out there. Uh, it, it's kind of like, G- you could say Jesus as well. I mean, that, in any case, by the way, uh, where you are in a Bible study, if you're newer to the faith, newer to the church, and someone asks you a question about the Bible, if you answer Jesus, you're, you're mostly right every time. <laughs> like just, uh, 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 Jesus, it's probably right somehow, or, 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 you know, I mean, there's some exceptions, but just take my word for it. If, if you don't know what to say, throw it out there, it'll work for you. The spirit in this case is, I think, a a very general answer. But but what if the spirit played a very direct role to John 19? That's the question we need to ask. If water and blood are significant, and John is referencing that, which it makes sense. These are the only two places he couples them together. Then we would expect if he also throws in the spirit in one, we might find the spirit in the other as well. So let's see. We're going to read verse 34, and then we'll keep reading through 35. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe So John says, when the water and the blood came out of Jesus' side, there was a witness there, and his witness is trustworthy. It is absolutely true, and he testifies that you may also believe. Who is the witness? Now, there's a a lot of mixed answers on this in scholarship. Some think that it was just some unnamed guy, and John just sort of, hey, you were there. What did you see? Okay, that doesn't seem very trustworthy to me. Others have argued that the unnamed witness is John himself. But again, this seems a little strange because John always refers to himself as the beloved disciple, and he doesn't do that here. I think it's the Holy Spirit of God. I, that's my, that's my, my take on this. I think that the, the one who bears witness, who is true, whose testimony is true, who testifies that you may also believe, sounds strikingly like the Holy Spirit of God, doesn't it? What did Jesus say of the Spirit in John 16, 13? He said, when the Spirit of what? Truth comes. He will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears me speak. John goes on later at the end of this gospel and talks about how the spirit is the one who leads this this text, the writing of this text that you may believe. The spirit is the one who bears witness to the water and the blood. He was there the day that Jesus died. He saw Jesus die. He saw the water and the blood leave his body. He was there that he might testify to these things that we might believe as well. John calls on the water of life. He calls on the blood of life. He calls on the spirit of life to come and testify concerning the nature and the identity of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the very Son of God? Can he give eternal life if you come to him, confess your sin, believe in your heart, and confess with your mouth that he is Lord? The water says yes. The blood says yes. The spirit says yes. All three of them testify. We were there. We saw him die. We agree what John is saying is true. You have no reason not to believe as well. And if these testimonies are true, then that leads us to the second part of our time this morning, which is the verdict. Every court case has a verdict. Look at verses 10 through 12. John says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. If, if these testimonies are true, and we believe they are, we believe they're from God. John told us that in verse 9. They're not human testimonies, they're from God. If they are true, then the verdict is simple. If you have the Son, if you believe Jesus Christ and you have Him, two things are true for you. Number one, you have the testimony of the Son. In yourself, and number two, you have eternal life because life is in the Son. That's it, that's the verdict. When you believe in the Son, when you receive Jesus as your Lord, you get the Spirit, you get eternal life, you get God's presence, just like the water and the blood and the Spirit testified, and their testimony becomes your testimony. So here's what this passage really means. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is is how this passage applies to us. And there's really two applications for us today depending on your relationship with the Son. If you have the Son, here's what it means for you. It means that you have eternal life and you have the testimony of the Son within you. Now let me ask you a question. What are testimonies meant for? To be shared. To be spread. So that's the application here. Go. If you have the Son... If you've drank from the water, if you've drank from the blood, if you've been filled by the Spirit, you have His testimony, go and be a witness. Go and testify to these things. Jesus said in Acts one eight, what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Go, therefore, He says in Matthew twenty eight nineteen, and make disciples. We so overcomplicate this. It's not rocket science. What, what is the point of this? If you have the Son, you have the testimony of the Son to share and make disciples with other people. That's it. Well, what if, they don't, what if they don't know enough theology? Or what if they haven't gotten their life? It doesn't matter. He says, make disciples and baptize them. Dunk them in that tank. And then teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So often, people of God, listen to me. I will speak to you about baptism, and you'll go, well, Pastor Derek, I don't know that I'm really ready yet because I still have this like, sin issue in my life. Okay, yeah. You're going to have that in your life until the day you die, probably. Jesus, there's not a, a right time. You know what the right time is to be baptized? The moment you believe. Believe the gospel, be baptized, then teach them to observe All that I have commanded you. That's where the discipleship really begins. Believe, baptize, then you begin to learn. Some of you have been waiting for this perfect time. There's no perfect time now. Come talk to me after, not right now, but after this, after I'm done talking to you, you come talk to me, and we'll get you set up. You need to be baptized. Jesus commands it of his people, it's a part of your testimony. And then you take that testimony, and you, you share it with other people. You testify. You be His witness. Now, what if you don't have the Son? What, what if you're here because someone drug you to church, and you're like, oh... <laughs> if you don't have the Son, then this is what it means. You're the jury, and the water and the blood and the Spirit are testifying to you. They're presenting you with the evidence. They're presenting you with the truth of what happened to Christ on the cross and what it means for you. So you have a choice on the table, don't you? You have a choice. You can keep doing the same thing that you've been doing every day, which if we're just being honest between the both of us, is probably not working out super well for you. And I don't say that as a, as a thing of judgment. I say that out of experience. Usually when I do things in my own power, it it works poorly for me. So you can keep doing that. You can keep trying that. Keep digging the same hole for yourself every day. Or you could do something different this morning. You could drink from the living water. You could drink from the blood. You could eat from the body of Christ. You could be filled with the spirit of Christ. You can have forgiveness of sins. You can have forgiveness for the things that you're most embarrassed about, you're most ashamed of. You can have freedom. You can live in freedom. You can live without that weight of guilt because you won't be under guilt anymore. You'll be forgiven. Set free from the law of sin and death. you can receive eternal life. You can have hope for a future. In a world that craves death, choose life. Have life. Life that comes from the sun. Life that comes from the water, from the blood, and the spirit. They testify to you. What will you choose? It's on the table for you. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the witness of your servant, John. The witness of the blood and the water and the spirit that testify to us concerning the true identity and nature of Jesus. I pray, God, for those this morning who have never tasted the water, the blood, and the Spirit, that you give them the faith to do so. We believe that apart from your work, we we have no capacity to believe. So would you give belief, would you supply faith this morning in the hearts of those who know what the water and the blood and the Spirit testify to are true? that they may come to faith this morning and enter into eternal life for the first time into forgiveness, into freedom and that we might lovingly walk with them, baptize them and then begin to teach them what it means to follow you on a day-to-day basis. Forgive us when we lack belief. Forgive us when we doubt. Forgive us of our sins Cleanse us with your spirit and embolden us to be witnesses for your kingdom, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Court is adjourned. <laughs> By way of reminder, a, uh, a meeting taking place right after this in A105. If there are too many of you, then we'll just move it in here uh, with Pastor Chris Cunnington involving the details for the Israel trip next year. If that's something that you're interested in, then you can go over to A105. And like I said, he may bring you back over here. There's a lot of people interested. So God bless you. We'll see you.